0: You're listening to the Book Stack with Annie, Nia, and Sydney.
1: Hey, friends, and welcome to the Book Stack. I'm Nia. I'm Sydney. And I'm Annie. Today, we have a very special chapter for you. Joining us for our season finale is author Jay Scott Savage. We've covered one of his 19 books in our stacks this season, The Lost Wonderland Diaries, back in Chapter 3. And he's also the author of the Far World series, the Case File 13 series, and the Mysteries of the Cove series. We are so excited to have you with us today, Scott.
2: Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So the first question I have for you is what books inspired you to become an author?
3: So when I was a kid, um, I I talk about a little bit that I have uh, ADHD. Um, I was in speech therapy for quite a while. I had a patch over one eye. I had glasses. So I was kind of a weird kid already that didn't necessarily fit in. And then my family moved across the country and I got picked on a ton. Um, I got eggs smashed on my head, rocks thrown at me. In fact, I based Tyrus in a lot of ways on my experiences being younger. And I wanted to go somewhere safe and where I went was the library. Um, And so that's where librarians introduced me to tons of books, Where the Red Fern Grows, Charlotte's Web, A Wrinkle in Time, and a lot of books like A Wrinkle in Time where you were reading about a kid who didn't fit in. And so I really feel like those were books that not just inspired me to write later, but really sort of saved my life at the time. And and so I wanted to write books about and for kids that maybe didn't fit in as well either.
1: Wow, that's really that's really powerful. Out of the books that really touched you when you were a kid, what was your favorite one?
3: I think probably, again, A Wrinkle in Time, which is why I was so frustrated with the movie adaptation.
1: <laughs> I, I, just, I haven't I, seen it yet.
3: Uh, no. it, the biggest thing I hated about the adaptation, like I'm okay with changing things in movies. I totally get that. But the heart of a wrinkle in time is that, as a family, they are fighting evil. Like the dad goes to to face evil, the daughter comes and everything. And in the movie, they change it to this thing where the dad apologizes to his daughter and says, "You know, I'm sorry, I left my family to go shake hands with the universe, and I should have like thought more of you guys. And I'm like, no, that's not." That's not what the book was about, but it it is a book that I've read to all of my kids. The the writing is different than kids' books now, but it's definitely one of the top books for me that I think inspired me.
0: Well, so that inspired you as a child. Nowadays, as an adult, who's your favorite author?
3: (laughs) That's such a hard question, right? Um, I, I almost like have to break it down. Like I think Neil Gaiman's imagination just blows me away. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, right? Like you just read stuff and go, like I know how writers' brains kind of work, but like your brain is on overdrive. And then I really love Erin Morgenstern. Her writing in The Night Circus and The Starless Sea, like there are things where you read other authors and go, okay, like I think I could do that voice. Or I think, you know, I might write it in a different way. Erin Morgenstern is just, an artist with words. Her, her writing is so beautiful. From a kid's standpoint, I don't know, I've got lots of, I, I love Rick Riordan's Percy Jackson series. Obviously, J.K. Rowling is is amazing. I mean, just her characters and, and settings are really great. I have a good friend, Shannon Messenger, who wrote Keepers of the Lost Cities. And I think she does a really great job with sort of aging kids up, kind of like J.K. Rowling did with the Harry Potter book. So those are some of my favorites.
2: Okay, so what inspires your stories?
3: So I think that authors have two main ways of approaching a story. And it's either plot or character. So you'll have someone who says, wow, what if this happened? And then they figure out the characters who go in. Um, For me, I'm almost always character first. I'll have like the idea, like when I wrote Mysteries of Cove, I started with the idea of kids building a mechanical dragon. But then it immediately went to, okay, what if there was like, these two kids and one of them is super creative but lives in a world where creativity is against the law and one who has not had a lot of friends and isn't very good socially, who has to cooperate with another kid in order to build this this dragon um, when I did Lost Wonderland Diaries it started with that Lewis Carroll actually had these missing diaries. But then I immediately went to, okay. what if we had a a dyslexic girl who doesn't like reading, who gets sent into this world filled with strange words and stories? And so I almost always start with uh, a character who for some reason doesn't fit into the world that they're in. And then the conflict sort of goes from there. Do you feel
0: like that? Is based off of your experiences of, of not fitting in. Do you do you just put like a piece of yourself into each book?
3: I I think you do, even if you're not doing it intentionally. I mean, as an author, you don't want to be heavy handed. Like you don't want to come back and have a message. But at the same time, I, I think you put part of yourself in. Like I'm doing a um I'm doing a graphic novel with Brandon Dorman right now. Kind of a, I, I, I guess you call it like a hybrid graphic novel. Sort of like a like last kids on earth or captain underpants or dog, man, you know, where lots of illustrations all the way through. And the idea is that it's kids playing football against aliens in space for the fate of the world. Okay. So like, that's the big concept. That
0: sounds Um, awesome. I'm excited (laughs) already.
3: It's it's like, I got to see some pictures and I was just like, Oh my gosh, these are so amazing. So I'm really excited about it. But when we talked about it, I said like, like, I think, I think a book like Captain Underpants is great because it gets lots of kids reading. And anything that gets kids reading, I'm in favor of. But from a message standpoint, like there's not a lot to it. And so I wanted to have a kid whose dad is like the the greatest quarterback, greatest football player of all time. But the kid hates sports and is bad at sports. And he gets drafted to be part of this team that has to save the world. And so then you get kind of identity, you know, being in his dad's shadow and figuring out that maybe it isn't that he hates sports, maybe it's that he hates being the son of this really famous football player. And so even then, even in a graphic novel, I wanna kind of have that. And 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 I think that again, that it does come from a place of, it's like people who write YA novels, typically if you ask them their memories of being younger, they'll remember driving, dating, high school, like all of that kind of drama. If you talk to middle grade authors, not always, but most of the time, they'll remember elementary school and building forts and kind of when everything was new and discovering. And so for me, not fitting in in that time, I think I relate to those characters really well.
1: That makes sense. Yeah, that definitely makes <laughs> sense. So with that, with how you develop your characters and how you approach this particular plot, how does that reflect your, your writing process? Yeah, as a whole? so...
3: Um, You know, you've got, again, in in authors, you've typically got what are either called outliners or pantsers, kind of writing by the seat of your pants. Um, And and even in big name authors, there are authors who just sit down and let a story flow. Stephen King says, I don't outline. I just put characters and let them do their thing. Terry Brooks is like, literally his outline will be sometimes longer than his actual novel. Um, But for me, what I start with is, like... OK, this this is going to be steampunk plus dragons or it's going to be kids discovering that Alice Wonderland is real. So like what is the sort of hook? What's going to make the story unique? Then I go directly to character at that point and go, OK, how can I? It, it's sort of almost like a, an irony where like if you think of Tangled, you're like, OK, we've got a thief who doesn't trust anyone who is going to be the guide of a woman who has lived her whole life in a tower to take her to the outside world for the first time. You know, it's like there's an inherent conflict. Um, If you think of like Silence of the Lambs, you know, it's like a brand new FBI agent has to rely on a horrible serial killer to solve an equally terrible uh, serial killer crime. And so I like to look for that kind of irony. So it's a kid who's creative, in a world where creativity is against the law, or um, it's a girl who is immune to magic who lives in a world where everyone has magic. Uh, So I I come up with what is the conflict between the character and the world, and then um, I do kind of quasi-outlining. I have kind of, I break stories into four parts, and so it's like, this is gonna be this beginning, this is the ending, this is how the character changes and learns, and then this is the mistakes the character made before they learned or changed. And then once I have that, then I just, I, I might write a couple of chapters just to get the voice in my head, just to get the feel of, of, um, of does this, does what's in my head work on paper? But then at that point, I just want to get beginning to end. I, w- I want to get from the start to the end so I can go back and start polishing and editing. And then I, I write. I try to write every day and I try to not end at the end of a chapter because starting cold is really hard. So when I finish a chapter, I like to write at least a paragraph or another page while I'm kind of, while I'm warm and in, in, in the world so that when I sit back down, I've got something to to work with when I start.
2: All That's of that really makes sense. That all makes yeah. so much sense. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Those are great pieces of information.
3: It, it really is like like when you're first starting out, like I tell people, don't worry if you write different things. Don't worry if you don't finish stuff. Like you're learning your craft, you're learning your art. When you start playing the piano, you say to play the same piece over and over and over, you know, until you get better. That's the same thing with writing. So when you're starting, any writing is good. But once you get to the point where you've got kind of deadlines and, and you've got things that, that, that you know, here's how much time I've got to do this and here's how long it needs to be. Then you've got to get more of a process. You can't afford to get like three quarters of the way through and go, wow, this really isn't working, you know?
0: Interesting. Well, I know, Scott, that you do a lot of research when you're beginning your, your writing process to make sure that things are correct and, and are going to work the way you want them to. And I know that you dove in really deep for the Wonderland Diaries,
1: did. Uh,
0: but what are some of the fun facts that you learned about anything as you were Doing deep dives in research.
3: Mm, Great question. Um, So uh, when I wrote the case file books, um, in fact, I had a librarian one time say to me, "It was, it was in the deep south." And and she goes, "You know, zombie kid, like there's a lot of like real voodoo stuff in there." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, I totally," you know. And I'm telling her, she's giving me this look, and I'm like, "Oh, you're not happy with that, huh?" And she's like, "Well, I just think, you know." And I'm like, "It's not like actual. Like I'm not putting actual like curses in there." but I'm putting a lot in there. So like when I wrote Making the Team, I researched like the history of body snatchers and why people thought that electricity could bring people back to life. Um, The whole kind of why was Frankenstein written the way it was. And then I blended that into the story that my kids learn those things or know those things and that helps them solve the clues when i wrote mysteries of cove the idea that came up right away was that i wanted because it was steampunk i i like i love the city of Emberfield, where you're like this enclosed area you know um, you love like city of Ember. yes it's such a great story and so i thought well i i don't want to do a cave but what if like what if something terrible terrible had happened in the outside world and they sealed themselves up inside of a mountain and basically dug the mountain out into layers. And so that was the concept for this this world inside of a mountain, a city and a mountain where creativity was banned. And so then I had to research. OK, so they went in because it's steampunk. They had to have gone in late 1700s, early 1800s. What technology did they have and then how could they have used that technology to survive? So, you know, could they have developed hydroponics? What, uh, I I like had to research, like how does a steam engine work? What sort of things would they need? And then that takes you to things like, um, can bees pollinate inside an enclosed space like that? You know, if they had brought in food and planted things and stuff and started, you know, with kind of a, a city there that they closed, would bees have been able to survive there? And they wouldn't um it turns out that bees need the sun in order to be able to navigate so they can't pollinate without the sun so then okay can you hand pollinate yes you can so that was an interesting thing for that one um and then writing the the wonderland diaries like that has just been an adventure um you know you hear about the mcu the the marvel cinematic universe right Mm -hmm. what i've told shadow mountain from the beginning is i i wanted to do the lcu the lewis carroll Universe. Um, And so um, it started with really researching Alice and what well started actually with Charles Dodson himself. So Lewis Carroll, real name Charles Dodson. In fact, even his name Lewis Carroll was uh, an acronym um, for his full name and middle name. Um, And he was really into weird puzzles and codes. He invented word ladders and and a whole bunch of really interesting things that I kind of put into the book. And then, then I went to the individual books and went, okay, we've got, we've got Alice in Wonderland, which is its own unique thing, despite what Disney has done. Like, like, the Tweedledee and Tweedledum do not live in the same world as the Queen of Hearts. Um, That's there's Wonderland, there's the Looking Glass World. And then I went, okay, if we take this further, because there's four missing diaries, where could we go? Um, And at that point, that's when I looked up like the Hunting of the Snark and went, okay. At least according to stuff that Lewis Carroll said, um, there's an island that the Jabberwock is on from the Jabberwocky poem. And sort of the upside down of that island is where the hunting of the snark is. And so I kind of set up all that in the world. And then later on, um, toward the end of his life, he published two more books that pretty much nobody knows about. Like no one has read them or heard of them. I mean, Unless you're really a Lewis Carroll aficionado, um, but they take place in uh, Victorian London um, and the fairy world. And the fairy world has this huge hierarchy and political intrigue and everything. And there's time travel and crazy stuff. And so, um, I I kind of pitched to Shadow Mountain. You you don't you don't get like a four or five book deal typically unless you're a really really big name. And so it's like, here's what we would do if there's one book. Here's what we'd do if there's two books. And then if I could carry it out to four or five books, kind of here's what we do. And so researching Lewis Carroll's life and why he wrote what he wrote. And then lots of lots of cool
2: Alice in Wonderland
3: details. It was a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, I read um, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. And I didn't realize that they weren't the same thing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> that there really exactly. are different areas. Disney really just combined everything into an hour and a half.
3: They did. And, and there's so many interesting things. Like, for example, we look at the Mad Hatter. We look at him sort of as like a Willy Wonka type character where like he's eccentric, but really wise and thoughtful. And we've turned him into this character who says things that sound weird at first, but they're really kind of deep. And the funny thing is, that's not who Hatter was. So in Wonderland, you have the Mad Hatter or Hatter, okay? Um, And he has a tea party with March Hare. Um, In the Looking Glass world, which is uh, basically the first one is cards, the second one is basically a big chessboard, um, you have Hatter, H A T T A, and Haya, H A I G H A which is really funny because they're basically the way that British people would pronounce hatter and "hare." Oh, interesting. (laughs) So you have Hada and Haya, um, who are two different people, but they're pretty much the same. Um, But I think that sort of what we've done is we've taken Lewis Carroll himself, who really did use words in a crazy way to give deep meanings and fun meanings. We've taken Lewis Carroll, and turned Hatter into kind of who Lewis Carroll was. And and that, it makes him a really fun character to write because, you know, we love that kind of character. We love these characters who teach really deep things in unexpected ways.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. With you saying that, it makes complete sense with the Tea Party scene in, Wonder, in Lost Wonderland Diaries where everything he says leads up to one line that's that's different and then it's everything that he says backwards so his his conversation is a palindrome
3: yes Yes. which
0: is such a it and with you saying that that you represented him as Lewis Carroll like it just blossomed more information into my head and it was kind of like this eye-opening oh
3: so Lewis Carroll does amazing stuff like he There was a poem that he wrote that was the introduction for one of his books that was actually an acrostic on the left. So the letters, the first letters of the poem um, spelled the name of a person that he was basically dedicating the book to. And then there were lots and lots of like, like, for example, in the tea party, the reason they're at the tea party is because they were there with time and time left the tea party before they got there. And there was a mathematician who wanted to add kind of a fourth dimension to create a theory. And he added time as the fourth dimension to take it from a plane to a cube, right, to 3D. So Lewis Carroll was angry and said, you can't just randomly stick in time. And so he had time leave the tea party, which is why they can never leave. They're basically rotating around and around in a circle on a plane. There's a ton of stuff like that that Lewis Carroll has done, like, like just really deep things that you don't realize unless you see them. And when I wrote The Lost Wonderland Diaries, there are people who are like, oh, it's Alice, it's steampunk Alice or Alice was really in an insane asylum or or she was on drugs or whatever. I didn't want to do that. For me, it's like I really if you ask me my favorite book of all time, it would be Alice in Wonderland because there's so much logic and imagination being balanced in it um so when i did some of the poems like i did that one which again was really hard to do can you do a conversation where the first line and the last line like they're exactly the same but in a way that the reader wouldn't notice it you know so like that was the challenge um and then in my new book that's coming out in september secrets of the looking glass um like i won't make it into a spoiler but there was a poem that i had to write that had to have a specific letter for the first letter of every, like the the first, each line had to start with a specific letter and end with a specific letter. So I have to start with this letter and then to keep them rhyming, that means that you have to go rhyme, rhyme on line one, rhyme, rhyme on line two, because you've got different last mm-hmm. words. Um, and then I wanted that to happen, but I also wanted it to have one meeting where when you first saw it, you would say, okay, it's about this thing. You know, it's about a a chess game. But at the end of the book, they would come back and go, no, wait, it's really about this. So like writing something like that is at first, like your brain's just like, I can't do it. But the more you play with it, you know, it comes together. And Lewis Carroll did that so much. So I wanted to kind of have that feel in his books. I love that.
0: I have a question for you. You mentioned that one of your favorite books of all time was Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. What would the other two be?
3: Oh, so, you know how, at least I think a lot of readers have the memory of sort of like the first time you remember really being in love with reading, right? Um, For me, that was, um, it was when I was in a cabin. Um, My family lived in Northern California and and we borrowed or rented this cabin that was up by Donner Lake. And so it was the summer, I was out on the porch, there was like a bunch of green apples that I was eating, and I looked through the books they had, and one of the fiction things they had was this really, really thick volume of Aesop's Fables, which sounds really weird for a kid, but I just was like fascinated, I didn't know what any of them were, and I loved that like everyone had this sort of little like end kind of stinger, you know, like this is what it was about, so that's probably another. If if I named probably the three books that had influenced me most as a kid, it would probably be Alice in Wonderland, A Wrinkle in Time, and oddly enough, um, Aesop's Fables, like the really big one that includes all that. Because those three each have specific, unique memories for me.
2: I also had a giant copy of Aesop's
1: Fables, and I loved them.
3: Yes.
2: I
1: don't know I don't why. Know why? But
3: <laughs> they just were great.
0: They really are
1: pretty. I think part of it is they're pretty timeless, though. I mean, they've reached for so far and so long and they just kind of touch that place with all of us, no matter what time or, you know, where we are.
3: Yep. Yep. I think you're right. I think you're exactly right. It's because they're character based, right?
1: They are. Instead of plot
3: based. Yep. Yep. And they're short enough that, that like they're short and satisfying where you like read it. You, you have this interesting scenario that, that pulls you right in. Like there's some sort of conflict right away. And then at the end, there's like this bam and here's the takeaway from it. And you're like, oh, wow, that was cool, you know?
1: It's Maybe a that's story snack.
3: I- it's
2: so
1: yeah, exactly. short. And, yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's
1: not a full meal.
2: It's just a snack. Yeah. I so after that. doing all of this research and the fun fact, if you could live in any of the worlds that you've created in your own books, mm. which one would it be? and why
3: <laughs> i know it's a like, tricky question those are dangerous like i don't want to live like in <laughs> in mysteries of cove that's sort of dystopian there it's like no i wouldn't want to do that and and man my first far world book like i put them through so much i don't know that i'd want to do that it would it would probably i mean it would be fun to hang around with the characters from case file 13 just because they're always solving cool monster mysteries. It would like being, you know, with Buffy the Vampire Slayer or whatever. You know, there's always something cool going on. But I probably, it would probably be either Wonderland or the Looking Glass World because, I don't know, they're they're like, it's not safe. Like when you look, you know, the Queen of Hearts is like off with their heads and there's, you know, all kinds of creatures and different things like that. But it's really just magical and weird fun. Um, uh, Like in the Looking Glass world, you've got the, The white queen who lives life backwards and believes in doing the impossible. You've got the red queen who's like so bossy, like she's constantly moving and and you have to run just to keep up with her and Tweedledee and Tweedledum who are just entertaining as heck to listen to. So I think probably given all of it, of the worlds that I created, probably the looking glass world.
2: To back off of that question, here's another one for you that goes along with it. If you were to live in that world, would you want to pick up the life of one of the characters that you wrote, or would you want to be Scott Savage? (laughs) (laughs) Dropped into the world.
3: That's a great question. Yeah. That really Um, is. It could, boy, it could go either way. I really like, again, like Celia and Tyrus might be my favorite characters. Prior to them, it would have been Marcus and Kaija from Far World. But I really like Celia and Tyrus, especially like in the first book, they're sort of learning who they are. You know, they're they're Celia's recognizing that being dyslexic can actually be a good thing and, and that she has this logic. And Tyrus is like discovering his imagination. And so in the second book, we take that away from them. Their mirror images get stolen and they have to discover that there's more to them than that. And so it would be really fun to go through the adventures that they do as one of them. Either one of them would be great. But at the same time, um, so I wrote a book one time um, and. uh, It took place um, in upstate New York. Um, It was for Deseret book and I wrote it without ever having been to the city that I wrote it, in. but I'd done a bunch of research and then I went and visited the city and like walking through and going, oh, wow, like like I'm in here, I know I know there's a hotel down there, I know what's up there. Like I knew kind of where everything was. And so I think probably I would like to go in as an author just because I'd love to go see, like, okay, I know where Humpty and Dumpty live, you know, and their house that's on the wall. And I wanna go see where this is. And I wanna see if the Knicks really looks like I imagined it. So I probably would wanna go in as an author, but it would be really fun to experience the world through one of my characters too. That would be pretty great. Thank you. You bet.
1: So with talking about some of the unique things you had and how you've written into some of your books, what are some things that you've put in there that have made them really fun and unique?
3: To me, unique is really important. Like there are authors who write a lot of books that are really pretty similar. I mean, they're good, you like them, you know, like like if you read an Agatha Christie mystery, they all feel like Agatha Christie mysteries. And even, even when she has some different characters there, they all have a similar feel to them. Um, I think like, I love Brandon Moles books. I love his middle grade. And they all have a very similar type feel where there's typically like a, a smart, but cautious girl and a mischievous impetuous boy who discover really crazy magic and go out on it um and and i think he just does that style of story really well um even i feel like rick riordan's books all have a similar feel to them for me anytime i start something new i want it to have a unique feel so um like far world it it was the first kids book fantasy that i'd ever written i'd never written kids books or fantasy and i didn't think i could actually when i started it but after that Um, The case file books were, I wanted them to be like X-Files for kids. So not the straight goosebumps. Like they're scary, but they're solving, like there are real monsters there and and they're out figuring out how they came to be and what they're going to do. When I did Mysteries of Cove, the initial thought was steampunk plus real dragons. Like that's a weird genre mashup, but it's kind of like Reese's Pieces. Like as soon as we introduced that, They were like people like, as soon as I heard it was Steampunk and Dragons, like I was sold, you know, Um, and then Lost Wonderland Diaries. um, What I was really looking for there was that Charles Dodson really went to Wonderland and Wonderland was a real place and the stuff that he wrote about, like those were really there. And so that's the thing that I've gone for with that series to sort of make it stand out. But I also, one of my fun things when I wrote, um, when I initially wrote the lost wonderland diaries, I turned it into my publisher and they're like, okay, like we like this, but you're basically just having Celia and Tyrus experience all these things that Alice does. And I'm like, no, like there is stuff they go to, but like, you know, the Arithmacy wasn't there and this wasn't there and you know, the headless ball, like I'm Annalise sings. And they're like, wait, hang on. The Arithmacy with the swimming numbers and all that, that wasn't in Alice in Wonderland. And I'm like, no. And they're like, Okay. Good They're job. Like, yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> said, you seamlessly it,
2: brought new things in.
3: Yeah. And they said, we're going to have to have Tyrus pointing out things that aren't from the books <laughs> just because it feels exactly like it feels like it had to be from Lewis Carroll, which was a really huge compliment, you know, was I wanted that. I wanted that feel in that world. And then I've got um, two new books that I'm working on um, right now um, that neither of them, so one, um, it hasn't officially been announced. Um, we're still putting together a contract for it. The other one is one that we're just gonna be shopping. Um, but one is, I describe it as a um, fifth grade Indiana Jones set in an elementary school done in a film noir voice. So,
2: That's um, <laughs> yeah,
3: so it's first person and he says stuff like, you know, like, fifth grade changes a kid, you know, or, you know, uh, education is a fickle mistress. Like that's the words, you know, it's it's the way the kid talks, you know? Um, And so that one, I I wanted like, the thing that'll make it unique is that it's a kid solving mysteries in this school, but his voice is really like, again, if you put Indiana Jones into Humphrey Bogart, like that's what you'd get, you know? So
2: that's- (laughs) That sounds awesome.
3: Yeah, I'm so excited. It is a fun one. And then my newest one the or the the graphic novel that I'm doing, that was again, tricky because in fact, I had a friend who I showed some pages of this graphic novel and he had read Lost Wonderland Diaries. And he's like, if I didn't know that you had written those both, I would swear that couldn't be the same author. Um, because in, in books like The Last Kids on Earth, um, it's very it's like 13-year-old stream of consciousness first person. You know, it's like that's me over there and this they have a bunch of hot dog stands over there and I totally don't know why like they have more hot dog stands than burrito stands because burritos are way better. But, you know, then <laughs> like that's just how they talk and and so you're like, okay, it's almost all telling. Even in dialogue, a lot of times it's the main character telling you what the other people are saying. And so doing that voice was a a really tricky thing to do. But what I love about that style is that the artist that I'm working with, like I'll put the story in and put the voice in and then he'll grab parts of the story or add things and change them to being part of illustrations instead, you know? So like I talk about that that he's out on the football field and there's the girl he has the crush on and that the guy who's this super cool handsome soccer player who's been on like magazine covers all over and my artist like takes him and the soccer player and has like kind of a bullet point of comparing the two of them you know i like this he likes this my favorite town you know and just those kind of things and so it's fun to see at least as much of the story being told in the pictures as you get in text like the total text for the entire novel of that um will be about twenty thousand words, which is oh, way, wow. way shorter than I usually yeah. do. So
2: it sounds like that's gonna be a good combination of artwork and text.
3: Really, really fun. And that's I so when I talk to librarians, which I do a lot, because I'm I'm on tour right now and we visit a lot of schools every day. And and you kind of ask like what are kids reading? What are they interested in? What do they like? And there's a lot of things but i think that right now that hybrid graphic novel so it's not the full-on comic book page but it's where there's so much of the story being told in pictures they just can't keep those on the shelves and i feel like that's a really you know you have gateway drugs right like i feel that's a gateway read you know that that's a great way to pull kids in and get them interested. Plus there are, there are kids, just like some people do better with audiobooks than than print books, some people do better with more visual. And so if we can bring them in and catch those readers, then, then they're still gonna get a great exciting story, but it's gonna be something that appeals to them more.
2: I've noticed awesome. too that a lot of the books that we read in high school or as children are now being adapted to those types of graphic novels.
3: Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. You're seeing a lot of that happening.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Scott, what are some of the ideas that you've put to ink that you are most proud of? Like you sit back and you're like, oh, that was really clever. I'm so glad I thought of that.
3: <laughs> um, I So I, again, I there are things that I like doing that I haven't seen anyone else do before. Like you talked about the chiasma, right? The, the first line, last line coming up to that thing. And the idea came in the the idea for that actually came in so there's i love like scary stuff um and there's um a netflix series that i think is just so brilliantly written um it's the haunting of hill house and the very last episode of it is a very redemptive episode and there is this ghost they've been seeing the whole time who starts by saying like three or four words And then part of the story goes on and then those words expand a little bit and they start to fill in and then a little more happens. And by the end, we see what those four words meant and how it ties into the whole thing. And I like I love playing with words. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, I want to do something cool with that, where the words themselves have a meaning. And so that's where I came up with the idea of of that conversation. And then um, also in The Lost Wonderland Diaries. so. Lewis Carroll um has a poem in, in Alice in Wonderland called The Mouse's Tale, and it's shaped like a mouse's tail, and it is about a mouse who is um being prosecuted uh by a dog. And so when I wrote The Lost Wonderland Diaries, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna have the mouse who's there from the mouse's tail. Then the they get they they end up um being uh arrested for trespassing by these birds in this village. And now the mouse, who is a barrister, has to defend them. So we have (laughs) the mouse's Tale, which is about a mouse who's a barrister. I have a mouse who's a barrister, and then I wanted the poem to feel exactly the same, but because they're with birds, I wanted to play with birds. And then at the very end, he gets stuck, the poem gets stuck. So, because he was in the and he got math knots in his tail. And again, like as a weird, weird Easter egg, Lewis Carroll did in a magazine. He did word problems, you know, math problems that were word problems that people tried to solve. And he called them math knots. And so a lot of those (laughs) stories were actual math knots that he did that people solved. And so it's like, okay, I need to write a poem that'll fit in the same way as the mouse's tail. That'll be an actual defense, like something when you read it, he's actually creating a defense for them, but it'll have bird puns in it. And then we can end it in a knot. And it's like, again, where your brain just goes, oh God, can I even do that? And then you play with it and play with it. And then when it comes out, you're like, wow, like I really love that being there. So those are the kinds of things I just, I love fun wordplay. I love things that maybe younger readers won't pick up on, but other readers kind of will get it. So as a kid, they just read and go, wow, that's cool. It's a poem that he's defending. People who know Alice in Wonderland a little bit better might recognize that. And then, if you have people who really know Alice in Wonderland, like there's different levels that you're getting. I also did so in The Secrets of the Looking Glass, book two of this series, in which is of coming chapters, out in September, right? In September. Yep. Yep. In Perfect. September. So that's based on the second Alice in Wonderland book, which is Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There. Well, in one of the chapters there, the chapter would normally end with the words Tweedledee and Tweedledum. So literally, those would be the last words of that chapter. But instead, he leaves that chapter hanging, and the title of the next chapter is Tweedledee and Tweedledum. And so I went to my publisher, and I'm like, hey, I've got a great idea. It's really weird, but I want to do this. I want to have every chapter in the book end with the title of the next chapter, literally to the point where like, the very last chapter in the book ends with the title of chapter one. So it's all kind of linked together. Right? Oh,
2: that's cool. yeah so like that. cool. <laughs>
3: my, uh, my editor came back. She goes, no, it'll be too confusing. I'm like, no, no, I really want to do it. <laughs> like, she's I, like, no, I don't trust think, me. Don't yeah, like we can do like a dot 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 at the end. And we can like kind of set off the chapter names. So like people at first, they might not get it. But once they've read a chapter or two, they'll really look forward to it. And uh, so she's like, I'm still not sure. So I went on Facebook. I'm like, hey, what do people think of this? And everyone's like, yeah, you totally need to do that. And Brandon Mull, who again, you know one of Shadow Mountain's big authors with Fable Haven. He's like, you have to do that. So I'm like, see, even Brandon Mull thinks, you know. And then when we did it, um, my editor came back and she's like, that worked really well. I love that. So that was a fun one.
0: <laughs> I love that you were like, no, no, this has to happen. This is a, this is a good idea and this is going to be good. Yeah, and
3: you like, got people
2: lot- to back you up.
3: Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and a lot of times you don't fight it. Like a lot of times your editor comes back and goes, you know what? This doesn't work. And you're like, yeah, that's, that's true. Like, yeah, I can see why I love it, but let me fix it, you know, or I'll do this or, or whatever. But there are a few times where you're just like, no, like this is so cool. You know. And I don't, again, I don't know that anyone's ever done that in a book. And I think that when you're, when you're trying to capture the feel of Lewis Carroll, who's all about wordplay, that doing that kind of thing is just great.
1: Oh, most definitely. I think that definitely fits.
2: Thanks. So going along with that, what book was your first book sold and how do you think it affected your trajectory as an author?
3: So, you know how there's a lot of people that grow up knowing they want to be an author. I, looking back, I wanted to be an author. I didn't know that I could be. Um, so like, again, I've talked about, you know, how books really affected me, how I really came to love libraries. Um, I, in high school, um, I had a creative writing teacher and, and I was not, I was not what you would call a good student. I mean, literally the only reason I graduated from high school, my psychology teachers came to me and said, um, you're not passing this class. And if you don't pass it, you don't graduate in like two months. And I'm like, what do I need to do to graduate? And they said, um, you need to get at least a B-plus on your final project. And I'm like, okay. And this was like, a, you know how in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, they have the big, you know, projects that everyone does that's like a show, like a science fair almost type thing? Yeah, so yes. <laughs> this was how it was. Like people did, it was all big group projects and studies and surveys and movies, and, and they'd all present them and take turns and stuff. Um, and so the night before the projects are due, I'm like, man what am I going to do for this project and I knew that they liked um they liked uh psychology and puns um and they specifically liked to joke about Pavlov's dog so (laughs) I wrote I hand wrote like I literally still have it didn't even type it up I hand wrote complete with misspellings and everything uh, a 10-page paper called Pavlov's dog a doggone good biography that was 10 pages of dog and psychology
0: That's that amazing. It they loved it.
3: They gave me an A plus, you know, all <laughs> kinds of, you know, laughy faces and stuff. So I had that, but, but this creative writing teacher, Mr. Sheehy, um, he literally like added more creative writing classes just for something. Like there was creative writing one, creative writing two. He added a creative writing three just for some of us that really liked writing. So I did all that. Um, I went to college um, and I took a, uh, a writing class there, a creative writing class. And again, remembering that I hadn't gotten good grades. Like I had a certain mindset and and I was, it, it was um, me and then a bunch of women who <laughs> seemed much older at the time. I mean, I was like 20 something, you know, so, but, but, um, but they like were all really good at writing and I felt really unconfident with that. And so I wrote a short story for an assignment and I turned it in. And afterwards, the teacher, you know, after she'd come back, she said, did you write this to yourself? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, so you didn't like, like, you didn't copy this from somewhere or whatever. And I said, no. And then what she said to me, but I didn't really hear was, okay, because I want to put this in the literary magazine. I didn't know what that meant. Like, all I really heard was like, she thought I was like cheating on that, you know, um, because again, I hadn't gotten good grades in, in high school. Um, and so, Literally I was almost 40 I was the CEO of an internet company um and we went through the very worst of the dot com boom and bust like I I uh, signed a contract to sell our company for over 100 million dollars to a company called about.com one night one day and literally the next day got on a plane back to San Francisco from New York and the entire dot-com world blew up and the deal fell apart. And so it was really stressful.
0: Oh no, oh, that's yeah, horrible. Yeah.
3: So it Yikes. was, I was on planes all the time talking to investors and, and, uh, trying to see who we were going to sell the company to, if we could sell it, you know, where we going to go out of business. And as a kind of a stress relief, I started writing a story that was basically a high-tech thriller it took what i was experiencing the dot-com world a programmer um who gets accused of murder and i wrote a few chapters and had some family and friends read it and they were like you know this is good what's going to happen next i don't know and (laughs) i i'd never gone to a writing conference i didn't know how to submit anything so i just kept writing until it got done and then my sister um who was much more knowledgeable um said you know you should submit this to a publisher and i said I have no idea how to do that. And she goes, well, there's a publisher in Utah. I was living in in, um, the Bay Area at the time in California. There's a publisher in Utah called Covenant um, that does like mysteries and stuff. And so I said, okay. so I sent this to them. And it happened to be exactly the right time when they were looking for kind of more thrillers. And so six months later, I got a phone call. And they're like, hey, we've got your book. We want to publish it. And I was like, great. I'm going to quit my job and be an author. I had <laughs> no idea the finances of how all that worked. But
0: I'm so glad you did it, right?
3: I am. Yeah, yeah. It So it did two things for me. The good thing it did for me is it made me go, wow, like someone will actually pay me for writing words, which is a big hurdle to make. Way too many people put like authors or editors or agents kind of on this pedestal where they're like, oh, that person's like a different type of person than me. And that's how I viewed authors. Like, I, how could I, I, I don't have a college degree. Like, I, I, I don't have a pedigree, I, you know, how could I possibly do this? But the second thing that it did is it convinced me that that's all I could write, that I could write adult mm-hmm. contemporary. I grew up reading fantasy, reading, you know, there wasn't there wasn't really what you would call middle grade or YA at the time as a category, but there were books that fit in there. And those were the kind of books that I read. And um, it wasn't until a friend of mine actually signed a contract with Shadow Mountain. I'd published, I think, seven or eight books by that point. Um, And I was convinced that I couldn't write kids books. And he was telling me about this, uh, this Shadow Mountain Publishing. And, you know, they had Brandon Mole and Obert Sky and they did tours and posters. And it was so cool. And he got a big advance. And I was like, man, I wish I wrote kids books. And that night I was in a hotel room. I was on a business trip and I was like, I had this idea like if i could write a kid's fantasy it would be about a boy in earth in a wheelchair and a girl who uh, was immune to magic in a world where magic was everything and as an author like you kind of get the voices in your head you know and i'm like why are you even thinking about that story you can't write that you you, you don't write fantasy you don't write kids books and so literally i wrote the beginning of what became water to prove to myself that i couldn't do it it was two in the morning and i was like i've got to go to sleep i'll try to write one chapter and prove to myself that i can't do it and then when i see that i can't write it my brain will turn off and i'll go to sleep when i see i can't do it (laughs) i I mean it's it's the piece of advice that i give the most is give yourself permission to fail okay we don't try way too many things because we're afraid we'll fail and if you go yeah i'm gonna fail but i'll do it then that opens up possibilities and so I I wrote and wrote and then I noticed like this weird bar of light on the desk and I'm like, wait, where's that coming from? And I turned around and the curtains were open about an inch behind me and it was about 730 in the morning and I'd written about 5000 words of what became Waterkeep to prove to myself that I couldn't write Water <laughs> And that's what I do now, you know? So, like, it was a good thing to start with a smaller publisher who gave me more leeway, uh, who, who convinced me that I could be an author, like, like, turned on that light bulb. But it was a bad thing in that, for years, I was convinced that I couldn't do what I feel like is kind of my calling, which is writing, you know, middle-grade fantastical stories. So... Great question. I love that.
1: So you do have the next book coming out in the Lost Wonderland Diaries, and that's coming out in September.
3: It is. Yep. Secrets of the Looking Glass comes out September 13th. And we're actually going to do, we're going to do a nationwide tour. We're actually going to be flying to about six different cities the week it comes out. And then the week before it comes out, we're going to do a really big, uh, they'll be in person and we'll be streaming them uh, a couple of big, Kind of launch party shows um so in in secrets of the looking glass the the red queen and the white queen their armies have been fighting forever on this kind of chessboard type land and they fight using words um so there are debates and and riddles and pun contests and and they use words to attack each other but then actually physically attack each other and so celia and tyrus have their mirror images stolen and they have to go find them in this, this world. And so we're gonna do a big show where Celia and Tyrus have just finished Saving Wonderland and I come to warn them that there's a lot more going on and instead of their mirror images getting taken, uh, mine does. And now we have to go into the looking glass world because if I've lost my storytelling ability, then the second story can't happen. And the best way to do that is to get a bunch of storytellers. So we're gonna have a bunch of authors who come and take part. Um, in the show and then we'll have audience members who come up with like pun subjects or debate subjects or riddle subjects and then the villains and the authors have to face off against each other you know with like
2: I love with, this like, so much that us. is that gonna be amazing so fun <laughs> so yep, you really are
3: hopping we'll into your own it. book it's exactly yeah yeah it really it really is just Brandon Mole started doing that in Utah, these big shows, and they're so fun because it's it. So it's a great way to launch a new book. It's a great way to get other authors involved. So we've had a chance um, to get some other uh, diverse voices who are from Utah, middle grade authors who are going to take part. Um, Some other authors who are with publishers where they really haven't gotten this kind of marketing, who are all going to be part of the show. And then we'll sign books and stuff afterwards and then we'll stream the whole thing as well so that people all over the country can take part and you know, give their own puns and you know, buy books and you know, enter, you know, giveaways and stuff like that.
1: That's really cool. you so much. And that'll I'm all so be excited. on your that'll all be on your website, is that correct?
3: Yep, that's correct. Yep. We haven't Excellent. put up there yet because we haven't officially announced it, but that'll sure. be it'll start uh, Uh, I guess the 13th 12th. So the the week of the 12th is when I'll be traveling around the country doing six different signings. And so the the Thursday, Friday, and Saturday before that, we'll be doing that. We're doing those. And it'll be up on the jscottsavage.com is my website. And that's where we'll keep all the stuff, all the updates there. Fantastic. Great resource.
1: That's so awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Scott. This has been such a pleasure. And we really appreciate you taking the time to join us
3: absolutely thank you so much for having me like like i I don't know there's almost nothing that i love more than talking reading and writing it's just i'm i'm as big of a reader as i am as a writer so it's super fun to talk books
1: love this well friends be sure to check out all of j scott savage's books including the upcoming secrets of the looking glass that will be in a bookstore near you in september and uh Keep an eye out on his website jscottsavage.com for all of that awesome tour stuff. That sounds like so much fun.
3: Great. Well, thanks again for having me. Thanks,
1: Scott. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Jay Scott Savage, friends. We had a great time interviewing him. And in celebration of Jay Scott Savage, and as a way to finish off the season with a bang, we're going to change things up for this chapter's upcoming reading. Instead of talking about what we're reading now, we are going to read two books inspired by our author Jay Scott Savage. We're going to pick a top selling book from 1963 when he was born, and you'll find out what book we picked when we return for season two. So stay tuned. We're also going to throw one more twist. One more twist. Yes. One more twist. Uh, Jay Scott Savage mentioned that he had three favorite books. So what we're going to do, I think, is why don't we assign a book to one another and we'll include our reviews for those along with our mystery 1963 book when we pick up season two. Ooh. Yeah. So Sydney, why don't you go ahead and start us off and pick one of Scott's favorites for Annie? Well, all right. Let's think about this.
0: Annie, you have four kids. Yes, I do. You fall I into do. a lot of, you fall into a lot of parenting time. So, so much. I am going to pick Aesop's fables because I want to hear, I'm sure that a lot of us know some of the fables from when we were kids, but I want to hear your take on it as an adult and hear some of those Stories that might play into parenting. You know, I'm gonna gonna pick Aesop's Fables for you.
2: It's been a while since I read those, so that's handy. And it's also interesting. It'll be interesting to look at them and see what my children know, because my children are children of the 2000s. I've got a 2009, 2011, 2020, and 2021. So it will be interesting to see what my older two kids, what they recognize.
0: Nice. Nice.
2: So I'm looking forward to that and I will probably read a lot of them out loud to my children because I'm really bad at that and need to need to do better. So thank you for starting a habit also.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I, I'm sure I'm sure you do more than you think you do, but that's uh... going to be a lot of fun with the younger ones. <laughs>
2: yes. <laughs> it will be fun. I think my 2-year-old will really enjoy that. All right, Mia, you ready? I am. Okay. So another book that Jay Scott Savage said was one of his favorites from growing up was Alice in Wonderland. So I'm going to assign that book to you and I hope that you will enjoy visiting or revisiting or whatever the characters and worlds and imagination that came from him.
1: Uh, It will be a revisit. It will be a revisit. I read that one as an undergrad and I loved it. I don't know if I read it as a kid. You read so many books as a kid, you forget. But that one, I really enjoyed and I've been meaning to revisit it anyway. So I'm excited I get to do that now.
2: And you can even read that one aloud to your child. Yeah. If you feel so inclined
1: or not. She might. She might like that one. We'll have to see. Well, that leaves us one. So, yeah. Sydney, you get the last but not least A Wrinkle in Time. (laughs) I loved this book as a child. I have not picked it up
0: since I read it as a sixth grader. So I'm really excited at the idea that maybe I see what. I pick up differently as an adult than I did as a kid. Cause I think I very much romanticized this book in my mind. Mm-hmm. So I think, thank you for assigning me that one.
2: Cause I think this is going to be good. I, I'm excited. This is gonna be good. So you this is a revisit. second read, at least for all of us, right? It's a read. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome. Right on. Cool.
1: Nice. All right. Well, friends, thanks for listening to this chapter of the book stack. And as we sign off, we'd like to leave you with some food for thought and we'll see you when we return for season two. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Bookstack Trio and follow us at Bookstack Trio on Instagram and Facebook to see a full listing of the books mentioned in our stack and in today's J. Scott Savage stack as well. If you read a book from this stack, let us know what you thought on social media. And you can also find us on our website at bookstacktrio.com. When you read a book, you are reading not just the words of those writers, but the words of the writers who inspired them through books, classes, and advice. J. Scott Savage.